If you need a Bible, we want to put one in your hand so we can get rolling. Just uh, raise your hand. They'll find you. Put a Bible direct right over here, Mr. Jeff, and right over here, Mr. Dave or Joe, uh, right here down the center. Right? Okay, we're getting them. Boom. Bang. Everybody doing all right? All right, then. What you got there, Abby? Okay. <laughs> Let's take our Bibles and get in them then. That's why we're here to worship God and to uh, study His Word. And so we're going to look at the sixth chapter of the book of Micah today. Uh, all 16 verses in a message that I have entitled simply, Live a Godly Life. And so with that, let's take our hearts to the Lord today. Uh, Father, thanks again just for your goodness and your mercy. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you are so patient with us. And uh, we pray, God, that uh, you would help us to uh, just receive from you, that we might be changed by you, uh, God, that you might be glorified in our lives. And uh, we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in the sixth chapter of the book of Micah, God calls once again upon his people to hear him. And we've spoken previously about what it means to hear God. It goes beyond simply having a concept or a point or a principle lodged in your mind, brought in through the ear gate, if you will. Uh, but it implies a, a paying attention, gaining understanding, then leading to an appropriate course of action. You know, oftentimes when Jesus would share a point or a principle, it wasn't uncommon at all for him to follow up with the statement, something to the extent or to the effect of, if anyone has ears to hear, right? Let them hear uh, or let them respond appropriately. The given in the text is that they were all listening to the words that were coming out of his mouth. Uh, but what would determine whether or not they truly heard him would be the way they responded to what he had to say. You understand. We use the word here within this same context all the time. You know, there you are and you're trying to explain something to someone. They aren't getting it. They aren't really responding rightly to what it is that you're uh, trying to share. I mean, they're there and they're listening to you, but they're just not responding to you. And you'll say something like, look, you aren't hearing me. You know what I'm saying? And you'll reiterate your point to try and invoke a right response to what you're sharing. So too with the word of God. Simply listening to it isn't going to do anything for you. It's not going to make you right in the sight of God. Now, oftentimes, people equate going to church as being right with God. But listen, it's not the hearer or the one who simply sits and listens to God's, God's word who's justified before God. It's the doer. Uh, the one who responds rightly. Paul put it this way. He said, for not the hearers of the law, or we could say the word of God, are justified or just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now James said essentially the same thing when he wrote, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, just deceiving yourself, thinking you're okay because you heard it, so somehow some magical, mystical way that translates to doing it or it all being established in your life. 
You can write it down and read it later. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus shared a very similar underlying um, point. But truly hearing God's word will necessarily invoke a right response to uh, God's word. So with that, we want to turn our attention now, again, to the sixth chapter of the book of Micah, where we read in the very first verse, hear now what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice, hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So, God here, in essence, calls his people, well, you can understand what's being said, right? It's like a courtroom kind of a context here. God calling his people to court. He has complaints, and he will contend with Israel. He says, you state your case, and I'll state mine. Bring your charges against me, and I'll bring my charges against you. And he calls them before the presence of what we might consider to be unshakable witnesses. The mountains, the hills, the strong foundations of the earth. And he says here in verse 3, O oh my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember uh, now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. And so God sets Israel up on the stand. You can see it in your mind's eye, right? There they are in the, the courtroom. It begins to unfold, and Israel takes the stand. And then in kind of a dramatic turn of events, God, rather than leveling a case against them, he begins by saying, what have I done to you? There's almost a sense in which he steps back and he says, listen, now the floor is yours. I mean, tell me, testify against me. What have I done to you? How exactly is it that I have wearied you? Or, or what kind of you know, overwhelming burden have I placed upon you? And the idea here is one of God saying, you know, what have I done to deserve your neglect? Think about that. What is the reason that you've turned from me, that you've in this way come to reject me? You know, whatever evidence that you can muster up that would somehow and in some way justify your position uh, you know, against me, I'm, I'm ready to receive, I'm ready to consider. Guys, we don't want to read into this an inflection <clears throat> or a tone of like this outraged, uh, pulpit-pounding plaintiff, okay? But rather, this is more of the inflection of like a, a wounded spouse or parent. Uh, 
Someone who loves you but isn't really feeling loved by you. What have I done to you to deserve this neglect, this sense of rejection or or rebellion, you see? As you study the nation's history, you discover that it was common for the people of Israel to complain about how burdensome it was to follow the Lord. And they had this fondness for sin and self-indulgence and saw serving the Lord as a burden. It was, a, it was kind of a bummer. It was, a, it was this inconvenience, you see. Uh, I've discovered, maybe you're with me on this, that they were then a lot like we are today. And people have this tendency to want to neglect their relationship with God to want to sin and indulge themselves, but then they want to blame God for the harvest of the seeds of all the sin that they've sown when they come into fruition, when that harvest comes into fruition. But God's like, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, this isn't on me. Don't be blaming me. It's that principle that we find in place Uh, There in the 59th chapter of the book of Isaiah, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Notice, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity, sin, deceit, lies, perversion. You understand what this is saying, right? When there is a, let's just say, gap of sorts, uh, a separation A distancing, if you will, between you and God. God isn't the one who has moved. Okay? Listen, he's not the one who has changed. The Bible states quite candidly, uh, with vivid clarity, there is no uncertain terms. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, what I'm about to say might sting a little but you realize that only leaves one alternative, yeah? If God hasn't changed, if God hasn't distanced himself from me, well, that means if there's a gap in our relationship, well, I've changed. I'm the one who's distanced myself be it through sin, be it through self-indulgence, be it through just a sense of, of drifting, becoming kind of lazy in my walk and relationship with God, you get the idea. But now, I want to blame God for what's unfolding in my life. Listen, when that's our rationale, when we start to reason like that, we can do the math, but can I just save you a step? It won't add up. All right? You cannot connect those dots and configure something that makes sense. God wants to bless. God wants to strengthen. 
He wants to use me. He wants to be glorified in me. But I, you see, want to dip my toes in this sin. I, I want to try out that sin. God hasn't forsaken me, but I've often decided to choose my ways over his. And so God says, let's look back, okay? Let's look back and let's think through exactly how it is that I've treated you, exactly what I've done for you. And guys, though we don't live in the past, we do well to remember and learn from the past, okay? That, you've heard that old saying, you know, those who don't know the history, don't learn from it, they're doomed or destined to repeat it, right? And so we need to look back, we need to learn. And how we, the things we learn from the past should impact the way that we live in the present. You with me? First of all, God says here in the third, pardon me, fourth verse, he says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. You know, you feel like I've been so hard on you. You feel like I've been so unfair uh, toward you. The truth is, God says, I have been only good to you. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. The very beginning of your relationship with the Lord, the foundation of it all rests upon God intervening in your life through deliverance and redemption. Do you understand that? You were enslaved to sin. You were in the house of bondage. You were oppressed you were overwhelmed uh, and unable to do anything about it. But because of God and his great love with which he has loved you, he saved you. That is, he redeemed. That's our word, isn't it? I have redeemed you. That is, I have paid a price for you. Oh, you haven't been redeemed with <clears throat> corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, but with the precious blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb without spot, without blemish. You've been redeemed from the subjugation of sin and transgression. Now, as for you and me, we read this list. He says, I have redeemed you. I have set you free from Egypt. I've brought you out of the house of bondage. You and me, we can add to that list. Not only has God redeemed us, he's given his Holy Spirit to us. You know, he has sealed us. He has given us gifts that would enable us through his spirit to edify and encourage one another. In verse 4, he reminds them that it didn't end once he had set them free, but that he gave them competent, godly leaders to go before them, to teach them, to equip them, to guide them in the way that they should go. Listen, so too with us. God doesn't save us and then go, well... I hope you can figure it out from here. He doesn't do that. Ephesians chapter 4. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints 
And this is where you take it and put it into practice for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity, the oneness, the maturity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect, that's the word, mature, fully mature man or individual to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, God wants us to grow up. You understand that. You know, if you have, if you've been walking with the Lord for, I don't know, two years, and then you've been walking with the Lord for five years, you know, you got to this place, you were excited, and you got to this place in a couple years, and then you just kind of you plateau, right? And then five years go by, ten years go by, fifteen years go by, and you haven't grown beyond where you were when you knew the Lord in two years. For two years, that's a problem. It's the same thing like that happens physically. It's kind of a parallel to what should be happening spiritually. You know, you have a baby, you have a, and that baby is born, and, and you expect it to just kind of lie to you, you know, start crying when nothing's wrong with it. And you know, it's just being selfish, and you kind of make some mess in his pants or whatever the case may be, and it's all good and well. Oh, that's so cute. And uh, you kind of deal with it. You kind of expect it. You anticipate it. They're a newborn. You even expect them to kind of make lots of mistakes as they're growing. They're toddling. They're slipping. They're falling. They're busting their knee. They're crying. They're kneeing you, this and that. But there comes a time when they're 15. 20, 25 years old, if they're still kind of making those same messes, it ain't cute anymore. It's a problem, right? But this is, if you could visualize spiritually how many, many Christians are today. They've been walking with the Lord 15, 20, 25 years, and they're still making the same messes. They haven't grown beyond where they were when they were two years old in the Lord. We're to be growing, putting to practice the things we're learning. God delivered them, gave leaders to them, was even blessing and protecting them unbeknownst to them. Look at verse 5. He says, oh my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And then he speaks of Acacia Grove or Shittim to Gilgal, uh, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Now what he's referring to here in this, let's say, uh, verse 5a, all the way up to, you know, when he's talking about Balak and Balaam, pardon me, Balaam, uh, is found in the book of Numbers. It's chapters 22 through 24. In brief, Balak, who was the king of Moab, he was worried about the children of Israel as they were uh, embarking in their wilderness wanderings and coming up on the borders and there within his territory. And so what he did was he hired a prophet by the name of Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. And Balaam, what you discover as you read through the account is he was a hireling. He was a prophet for pay. Uh, he, you know, whatever, if you paid him enough, he would do your bidding. And so Balak took him up on three different kind of mountainous vantage points where he could look out over the nation of Israel. And, and he wanted him to then prophesy against him. So here he is up on this mountain. He's seeing the encampment of Israel down there. And he's supposed to 
prophesy against them, to bring a curse upon them. Now ultimately, when you read through that uh, story there, he, he gave four separate utterances. But the problem was, each time, though he had been paid to curse them, when he opened his mouth, he blessed them. Now, essentially, he told Balak, look, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? You see, God had placed this hedge around them, no curse could come upon them. There was this spiritual, you know, remember what, it's that whole, uh, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. This is the heritage of the children of the Lord. Uh, that same kind of a thing, though he was coming against them, God was protecting them. They didn't even know it. Guys, how this should resonate in your soul. I, I promise you, undoubtedly, it would stagger you and me to know how often God hedges us from the onslaught of the enemy. And here we are just walking around obliviously, and God has this hedge about us. We don't even realize the protection He's placed over us as the spiritual warfare just rages around us. But you remember the story. And if you don't, listen, I don't mean to uh, make you feel like I, I've, been, I've been told in times past that when I say, you remember the story, and someone goes, I don't know the story. Now I feel dumb. I'm not trying to make you feel dumb. Uh, but when I say you remember the story, if you don't remember the story, let that be an incentive, an encouragement to go get familiar with it, to learn it, to look it up. Say, man, I don't know that. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to learn it. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, one who rightly divides the word of truth. Amen? So you want to know the word of truth. You're going to go. You're going to learn the word of truth. But you remember the story. There they were. Since Balaam couldn't curse them, he told Balak how to get them to bring a curse upon themselves. He said, listen, I can't curse them. God hasn't cursed them, but if you want to bring the discipline of God upon them, here's what you do. You take your young ladies and you send them down into the camp to intermingle with them, to have sexual relations with them, introduce your gods to them, and that will bring God's discipline upon them. And so that's exactly what he did, and that's exactly what happened. Here's the takeaway. God had delivered them, had led them, had blessed and protected them. And how did they respond? By walking away from Him, being disobedient and unfaithful to Him, sinning and rebelling against Him. Sound familiar? It's really what we're seeing here in Micah's message. They repaid God's goodness and blessing with rejection and rebellion. Listen, the proven pattern is one of God's goodness and blessing upon His people and His people turning away from Him and indulging in sin. Now when he says from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, 
Again, it's kind of a historical reference that you, you just would have to be familiar with. Gilgal would be the last place that Israel was encamped before they crossed the Jordan. And then, uh, or pardon me, Acacia Grove was that last place. And then Gilgal was the first place that they encamped after they crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land. So you see, God didn't burden them. He didn't overwhelm them. He didn't weary them. He was gracious to them. The idea is he kept his promise to them. He was merciful to them despite how they murmured and complained and sinned against him. And ladies and gentlemen, if we look back honestly, if we consider truthfully our experience with God, we will know the righteousness of the Lord. That's what he says. The fault isn't on his end. It's on ours. That's why he says, he says, I want you to remember Egypt and how I delivered you, I redeemed you, I saved you. I want you to remember how I gave godly, competent leaders to you to teach you, to equip you. I want you to remember how I hedged you and protected you, how I was so faithful to you, how I brought you out and brought you in to the promised land, out of Egypt, out of slavery, into this life led in the spirit where I was going before you. Listen, then you will know the righteousness of the Lord. Okay. Look at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, some see uh, these questions as like an honest inquisition. I believe it seems more accurate to understand resentment, uh, maybe a bit of biting sarcasm embedded within these questions. It's as if Israel comes to the bench with, exactly what do you want from me, God? You know, how much is enough? I mean, do you want a sacrifice of year-old calves, this would be considered the, the very best kind of uh, sacrifice that they could bring. How about a 1,000 rams? How, how about 10,000 rivers of oil? Do you want me to give my firstborn, I mean the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How much is enough? What do you want, you see? There's this ascending order of like, What's the word I'm looking for? I mean, of, of, this, of worth, of value. You see, they, they had lost sight of something, and that was this. Much like today, you know, we understand baptism to be an outward demonstration of the inward transformation of the heart, yes? Well, in a like manner, if you'll allow me, the sacrifices that God had established, none of which, by the way, were human sacrifices. These guys are amping up. Well, should I give my firstborn for the sin of my soul? Is that what you want? No, listen, God was very clear about the fact that those who caused their children to pass through the fire like those that worship Moloch were an abomination to him. Okay? Uh, 
But these sacrifices that God had established were meant to be an outward expression of inner trust and dependency upon the Lord for His grace and His mercy. You see, there was an embedded understanding that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Okay? They were to recognize, though, this principle that without the shedding of blood there could be no remission, and ultimately they would point to, they were a foreshadowing that would be fulfilled in the Lamb of God, even Jesus Christ, who would sacrifice himself upon the altar of the cross for you and me, and in fact, for all of humanity. But even with the sacrifices found in the law, guys, it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that God was after. What do we say? The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. That's all you got? The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. Thank you. You know, much like Peter tells us that we're not to use the grace of God as this cloak or this excuse for sin. You know that rationale that we like to employ, sin now, ask forgiveness later. Well, I'll just do this, then ask forgiveness. That's using the grace of God as a cloak or an excuse for sin. Well, listen, in like manner, to use the sacrifice as religious ritual, you know, sin now, sacrifice later, is to miss the point entirely. There was no point in sacrifice apart from repentance. You know, people can adopt this mentality of sacrificing more when they sin. You know what I mean? They had a rough week, and so, you know, I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to sacrifice some time. I'm going to volunteer around the church. I uh, had a rough week, so I'm going to sacrifice my finances. I'm going to give a little more at offering time. I'm just going to sacrifice this. Hopefully this helps, makes up for what I've, you know, you get the idea. But listen, it's not your sacrifice that God is after. It's your heart. David put it this way. He said, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, listen, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Perhaps you recall, maybe that's the way I should start saying it. No, man, you know what? You remember. I trust your students are the word, and if you're not, you'll be incentivized to do so, to be so. But you recall when God sent Saul, the first king of Israel, on him. He, he gave him a message and sent him. He was on a mission from God. Samuel came to him and told him that he was to utterly wipe out every Amalekite, everything that belonged to them, every animal, everything. 
for the way that they was retribution time. It was God's vengeance time for the way that they had treated Israel as they were on their journey. And we could get into typology. We could look at Amalek as a type of the flesh and how you're to utterly destroy the flesh and not leave anything alive. No, it's all there. But that's not the point for this particular passage, okay? But he told him, wipe them out. Everything utterly just annihilated. And later on, after the battle, after, you know, the time had gone by, Samuel came to check on Saul and find out what he did, how he did, and, and all. And uh, Saul was like, as the Lord lives, you know, there comes Samuel over the horizon. He sees him. He runs to him, man. As the Lord lives, all that the Lord has required, I have done. Samuel says, listen, if you've done everything that God has commanded, then how is it that I still hear the lowing of the cattle and the bleeding of the sheep? It's also, oh, well, you know, I destroyed everything just like God said, but the very best of the best, I just kept because I felt that they would just be a wonderful sacrifice to the Lord. You remember what Samuel said? He said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Why? For rebellion, doing your thing instead of God's thing, is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness, wanting to do it my way, not God's way, is as iniquity and, oh, what's the word? Idolatry. I'm going to worship and do my thing, not God's thing. Placing myself, my stubbornness is as idolatry. Think about that. When I'm stubborn against the word of God, the ways of God, I decide to do my thing, not God's thing. Be careful. Listen, God doesn't want you or me to get all caught up on making sacrifices. He wants you honoring his word from your heart. Okay? Now, look at verse 8. Here it is, right? What is it that you want from me, God? Do you want a sacrifice of year-old calves? Do you want a 1,000 rams? Do you want 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn the fruit of my being for the sin of my soul? What do you want from me? Look at verse 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If I could have your attention. What does a life look like that's honoring God's word? Let me think about that. What does a life look like that's honoring God's word? Now let me say this, don't miss this. A godly life will look like, like this, right? Like what we just read. But you need to understand that a life that looks like this isn't necessarily godly. Does that make sense? 
What that means is that God isn't looking for our lives to conform. He wants our lives to be transformed from the inside out. Are you following me? It's the difference between religion and relationship. It's not about the outward expression. It's about the inward. You see, so it's, it's, that outward demonstration should be the result of the inward transformation. That's what results. You see, that's, that should be the overflow. The demonstration should be the overflow of the transformation is what I'm trying to say. In other words, if we could take it up into like a New Testament vernacular, you've got to be, well, the words are, born again. You've got to be born again. In other words, just being born of the flesh, just being born physically, it's not enough. You know, e even if you're morally upright and fair with other people, you've got to be born again spiritually by the Spirit of God. Listen, was it right for them? Here's like, here's your quiz. Was it right for them to bring their sacrifices to God? You know, that's your, you got to, it's not a, it, it's not a A, B, it's like, you got to fill in the blank, you got to like write out your answer, okay? Because it, it kind of, it depends, doesn't it? It's one of those, well, that would depend. If their heart uh, was right, that is broken and contrite before God, if they had a heart of repentance, then yes, it would be appropriate, if it was outward ritual without inward repentance, then it served no purpose. Let me ask you this. Kind of bring it up into our context here a little bit. Is worship that doesn't result in a godly life, that isn't rooted in repentance, is it true worship? Meaning, if I have no heart to truly draw near to God, or I don't really have a heart that desires to lead a life that honors God, then are the motions, you know, the outward mechanics of worship, is that really worship? What God wants is for us, well, we see the three here. This is basically all of the law summed up in a sentence. He wants us to do justly. What does that mean? Simple. Just to, to, to be right by. To do right by. To be fair with others. You know, be fair in your business dealings. Don't rip people off. Don't skim a little more off the top because people don't know the difference. Because God knows the difference. Jesus said it like this. He said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Again, all the law would be summed up in that sense of if you will just do for others, do to others in the same manner that you would have them do for or unto you. Treat them how you want to be treated. Give them the deal. You want the deal. Second, he says, love mercy. I'm so glad that he didn't just say show mercy. But he said love mercy. Guys, this goes beyond showing mercy. Loving mercy. Measure, and it goes back to that doing unto others. It's that same principle. Measure out to others the mercy that you would have measured back to you. 
You know, there's something in us that loves to make others pay. But man, when we're in the hot seat, man, how we want mercy. You know, when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, you can just etch it out there on the side of your margin, look it up later. But when he said that with the measure we use, it will be measured back to us, this is what he was talking about. Judgment, the Bible says, is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you want judgment to be without mercy toward you? Oh my goodness, I don't. Remember when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. You catching a theme here? A pattern, a principle? How we should love mercy and look for the opportunity to extend it. Thirdly, he says, we're to walk humbly with our God. That is, in modesty. The, the idea is without arrogance. Listen, remember who he is and who you are not, right? That's the idea there. I mean, study the life of your Lord, the sinless Son of God, serving others, washing feet, giving his life away. And Jesus said, no servant is above his master. If I, being your Lord, your master, your teacher, have done these things to and for you, then you ought to then do them for and unto one another. And again, you guys, I want to be very clear on this. Doing these things won't make you right with God. But if you're right with God, you'll be about doing these things. Does that make sense? God isn't interested in our sacrifice, trying to make ourselves right before Him. Listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. Draw near to Him. Set your heart to learn of Him. The result? You'll live a godly life. You'll do justly. You'll love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Now let's look here in verse uh, 9, guys, and, and we just stay with me. We're not far from finished. The Lord's voice cries to the city. Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod. Who has appointed it? Now, where's it coming from? Here. You see, in other words, let's carry on. Are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination? Shall I count pure? You might underline this. Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence, her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Look at verse 9. Underline those words. Hear the rod. What does that mean? Well, they were feeling it, weren't they? They were feeling the rod, but they weren't, well, our word is, going back to the beginning of our time, they weren't hearing it. That is, they weren't responding appropriately to the Lord's chastening. Essentially, the message is sort of like this. You're bringing sacrifice, but you're dealing sinfully, crookedly. So, should I count you still as pure? Before me? 
You're going through the ritual, but there's no repentance. Should I count you as pure? They were using short measures, unbalanced scales, deceitful weights. You know how they did things in the ancient world. When they would buy or sell, they would do so by scales, by balance and all. And so there you are, and you're going to the merchant, and you need to sell a pound of grain. And so they take a weight that's supposed to be a pound on one side, and then they pour the grain on the other. And when they balance out, then all is just and fair. But what they're doing is they're taking this pound, this weight, let's say, let's say it's a pound and a quarter, or maybe just a 10 or 15% or 20% over a pound, something you can't really distinguish just by picking it up and they set it on the scale and then you pour your grain on there and then they buy it from you at the rate of a pound but they're getting 25% more, okay? Then you go to buy a pound of butter from them and they set a weight on the scale that's say three quarters of a pound. Again, you can't really distinguish it, but then they measure out the butter and you buy it from them. You buy it for the price of a pound, but you're only getting three quarters of a pound. You see that? And so, on the one hand, you're not getting your money's worth, and on the other hand, you're being paid too little. Do you see what's happening here? And this is why the Bible says dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord but a just weight is his delight. One who's not ripping people off, who's, who's being fair and equitable, balanced in their dis- business dealings. We call it integrity. God hates it when we rip people off. And I've discovered over the years that oftentimes people try to compartmentalize their lives. You know what I mean? It's that sense of, um, uh, you know, this is my business, this is church, you know, this is social, whatever the case may be. Guys, it doesn't work like that. How can God call the merchant who cheats their clients pure? There's no repentance, only lies, only deceit. Now look at verse 13. And, and we'll, uh, we'll move toward our close, Karen, so whenever you're ready. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but you shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You will make sweet wine, but not drink wine. Why? For the statutes of Omri are kept... All the works of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in their counsels. What's the result? That I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, or a reproach. You shall bear the reproach of my people. What's God saying? No blessing on ill-gotten gains. That's what he's saying. To the contrary, there would be only judgment. They were walking in the sinful ways and works of of Omri or Omri, however you want to say. He was Ahab's dad. You remember Ahab and Jezebel and that whole situation? Uh, Omri was Ahab's dad, and he 
carried on and took to the next level the wickedness of his dad. These were two of the most wicked kings in all of Israel's history. Here's the take home. There may be pleasure in sin for a season. But what will you do in the end? You see that? God will not honor sinful means to a profitable or pleasurable end. Or maybe I could say God will honor it, but only so as to render it the end that it deserves. Guys, the whole message here is that we are to turn from our sin. We are to trust in Jesus Christ. Do justly. Love mercy. Hey. You see that, right? Love one another. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you and walk humbly with your God. God, you are good and greatly to be praised. I pray, oh God, that you would just forgive us when we begin to perceive things through a jaded lens and begin to question you and what you're doing and why this or why that and that, but that we would recognize you remain the same. And when there's distance between us, we need to repent. We need to return to you. And so God, I pray that you help us to love you with all of our heart, to lead lives that honor you, that we do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you.